Hi everyone, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye.、Um, this is an episode of just me, Andy,、uh, and my friend Chelsea Zendi Shider, who is at Aoyama Gakuin University in Tokyo. Chelsea, thanks for coming on. Hey, hi. Good morning from Tokyo. Yeah, good morning for you. Good evening for me.、Um, so we wanted to talk about. I think a lot of、uh, you probably have listened to our episode back in February about the controversy over. Comfort woman denialism in Japan, and Chelsea was directly involved in that. So I wanted to kind of hear her kind of personal take on that. So we'll talk mostly about that today.、Um, she has a recent piece in the Nation as well, detailing her experience with that.、Um, but I also thought, you know, while we have her here, we could actually just begin by asking,、um, what is it like in Japan right now, and how? What's the latest in terms of COVID and vaccination and? Yeah. yeah. So Tokyo, I guess, is technically in its third state of emergency. But um, um, you know, for a historian like me, it's been really fascinating to see how a lot of like Cold War history influences how much、um, governments can actually do in terms of like lockdowns or state of emergency. So Japan technically cannot; the Japanese government cannot do a lockdown. Like a stay-in-place kind of style lockdown, so it's a third state of emergency. But people are really tired, and I think if you go out on the streets, things are really relatively normal.、Um, mm. But the vaccination rate is really, really low.、Um, then again, people haven't minded wearing masks, and I think we might just be in masks kind of forever for the、yeah. rest of.、So In Japan, masks are universal right now. Yeah, masks are totally universal. Like I feel,、okay. I feel like I forgot to wear pants when I go outside without <laughs> a mask on. Like you can feel people's、yeah. eyes on you, you know, without a mask. And, and why are vaccinations low? Is it、um, government didn't plan for it? People don't want it.、Um, oh man, I mean, there are the government has a lot of vaccines. I think it's complicated. I think part of it is is medical nationalism. Japan has、mm-hmm. not discovered its own vaccine, and、mm-hmm. I think they were really hoping to have a really great Japanese COVID、yeah. vaccine.、Um, and I think Japan. Why, is why haven't they? Like yeah, point, Russia, Russia has one. China has one. India has one. It's like who doesn't have one at this point? I know. I mean, I read this article about how、um, you know Japan just hasn't been like funding in certain kinds of medical research fields, and that's part of the reason. But then I also rem- I read this article in I guess the Yomiuri. It was an opinion piece about how Japan is going to have a really awesome vaccine, and <laughs> it was a weird piece because it's like there it didn't even mention that there already are COVID vaccines elsewhere. It's just like we're going to be really we're、yeah. going to make sure to make the best vaccine. Like we're taking a long time to make the best vaccine, but yeah, they right, don't have vaccine. Yeah,、uh, the logistics seems crazy. So I had to actually help my elderly neighbors make their appointment. Um, because they were, they don't have internet access. Like they were trying、mm. to call with their landline, and they weren't getting through、right. this landline because everybody over sixty five was trying to call.、Mm. So finally, I had to do it on the internet. And now they think I'm magical because I was able to like, get them their their vaccination.、Um, I I don't know, and maybe、yeah. there's some, like I guess with the. The what's the vaccine called? That's like measles, mumps, rubella. I guess the MMR or something. The uh, the yeah yeah. yeah. Is that the one that like led, leaves that huge scar on your arm? Is that no? That's、about? that's um for TB. That's tuberculosis. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah my kid has that. Um. Oh wow. Yeah, they still have tuberculosis in Japan in dorms、oh, every once in a while. Yeah, really squalid <laughs> dorms, I guess. Um, but I guess there was some kind of 
scandal where there was, um, I don't know, like some idea that it causes is linked to ovarian cancer or something like some kind of like um, correlation, not causation thing. So there, I guess, is a bit of vaccine skepticism in Japan as well. Yeah. There was these famous anecdotes of how um, last year Japan was doing nothing. It was just like getting away with it. It was like a miracle. Yeah. In hindsight, like did, yeah. Did that get disproven at some point? Um. Because well, they, like, they didn't shut down anything, right? They just get, like, we'll just wear masks and it's fine. Yeah. I mean, just wear masks. And I mean, so so some key, certain key things are shut down. Like my classes are not happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and daycare and elementary school is still happening. But we but elementary school kids are wearing masks. Um, people are washing their hands a lot. Uh, I mean, people don't shake hands or hug or kiss. And I mean... Uh, like before the pandemic ever you know ever (laughs) (laughs) they're an an icy people (laughs) you know i mean um i mean i've gone i've gone long periods without hugs like in my years of living in japan um uh but i you know and i remember even like i barely got out of berlin i was like in berlin with my kid doing research and i barely got out of berlin to come back last march i mean march Mm. 2020 and I remember even in Berlin, like people knew they had to social distance, but I would see people see their friends on the street and they still just like would be like mm. feel, you know, propel, like impel, like compelled to yeah. do physical contact. Um, right. uh, famously warm people. Yeah. So warm. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas in Japan, like there's just not really that. Yeah. Um, but but I mean, I so that's I, our, that's our cultural advantage that we never <laughs> hugged in the first place. I guess I mean, there's also there was also a recent I forget University of Washington study that thinks maybe a lot of respiratory deaths that are not going test not getting tested in Japan. So with all the masking mm, yeah. up, you would expect that respiratory deaths would go down, and they haven't really gone down. So maybe mm, some of that's hidden COVID right. deaths. Um, right. It's hard to know. I mean, speaking of the Taiwan thing, though, I know that Japan just sent a big load of vaccines to Taiwan. Mm. And is like um, kind of basking right. in the glow of being like a hero to Taiwan right now. Yeah, and Taiwan. <laughs> I mean, I should, from what I can tell, Taiwan Taiwanese people are very skeptical of getting um, any vaccines from China for sure, and they're mm-hmm. even afraid that even if it's AstraZeneca or one of these other, I think BioNTech, the Pfizer one, mm-hmm. they're like worried that it might be BioNTech made in China, and that's mm-hmm. also like a no no. Mm-hmm. I think I don't know. I, yeah. I, yeah. The last question is. Um, the Olympics. Do people in Japan expect the Olympics to happen? Do they want it to happen? Well, okay. So, I mean, I have, you know, the public opinion shows, public opinion polls show that people are generally not happy about the Olympics coming. And my conversations have mostly been, I mean, from the beginning, I've been a bit of a spoil sport about the Olympics, but I have noticed around me, my students and other people are more like, I mean, maybe people just don't feel empowered, but they're just kind of more like, are they really going to do this? Like, what are people thinking? It's more kind of like, what are people thinking? Like, how are we going to do this? Nobody's going to have fun with this, like, intercultural, Hmm. you know, cross-cultural thing. Because I guess, you know, it was really sold to Japan as a recovery Olympics after March 11th, 2001. 2011, sorry, 2011. Yeah, the Fukushima. Yeah, Fukushima and and the tsunami. Like half the country. Well, not half. Yeah. Wiping out a large part of the country. Yeah. Um, And I mean, that part of the country is not recovered. And then COVID is not over. So they're trying to be like, it's a post COVID thing. And also, I've recently been thinking about we look like 
we're heading into one of the hottest summers Japan has ever had, Tokyo has ever had. And you've been to Tokyo in the summer and it is yeah. not pleasant. Yeah. And I also feel like Human it's like a hell, yeah. climate change disaster. Yeah. Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think most of us in the outside world think the Olympics are a bad idea, but it's interesting to know what people in Japan think. They also think yeah. it's... I mean, I think the IOC, I think Japan is also maybe not even a sovereign nation in the eyes of the IOC. I think the IOC is just has them by the balls. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. We'll we'll just tell you. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of Japan. They spend the money to host it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I spend the money. I mean, I would like to say (laughs) that I am a Tokyo City taxpayer. And I built, I built that stadium. You built that stadium. Okay. Enough um, Olympic talk. This is not the podcast. (laughs) What we really want to talk about, of course, is, um, so I assume a lot of listeners have listened to that episode, but I'll just kind of recount the basics so that, um, to set up Chelsea to talk about her own experience. Um, I think most people are generally aware the comfort woman history was during World War II, the Japanese empire military, um, we can say enslaved. Uh, dozens if not yeah. hundreds yeah dozens if not hundreds of thousands of young women to act as sex slaves for the military mm-hmm. they were known as comfort women um iyanfu, i think is mm-hmm. the japanese term um and they were for, they're from all over asia including european women but the majority were korean and this wasn't really made public um lead debated until the 1990s mm-hmm. since then there's been a back and forth kind of it was kind of used as a bargaining chip and diplomacy between south korea and japan and the most recent thing was um, the most recent thing to happen was over the winter of December to January, this professor at Harvard, Mark Ramsayer, uh, published an article, an obscure article that kind of reframed the comfort woman history, not as not denying that there are these uh, women who were employed for sexual services, but kind of reframing it not as sexual slavery, but as like free agency. Like they chose to yeah. do this, they signed these contracts yeah. and so on and so forth, um, in a way, so that's uh, kind of sanitizing the history. Mm-hmm. I think the best way to perhaps think about this as an analogy is to think about maybe like a revisionist, a revisionist or denialist position towards like the Holocaust or towards yeah. like slavery in the U.S. Right? These these kind of um, things that are or like they're, they're, there's all sorts of genocide denial, including yeah. in Japan, right? Everywhere. Yeah. So th- these are all analogous. Um, and so to combat or to kind of confront this article that came out by Professor Ramsayer, a team of five uh, academics, like the super <laughs> team of academics, including Chelsea, uh, and the other four are a- Amy Stanley, Hannah Shepard, Sayaka Chatani, and David Ambaras, um, wrote this long document that I guess was originally a Google Doc, but then was published, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Publicly available document. Um, you know, we'll, we'll put links in the show notes. Um, just kind of documenting all the... Um, uh, like empirical, like research mm-hmm. mistakes Yeah. in Ramsar's article. Okay. So did I miss anything? Chelsea? No, no, that's pretty much the the setup in terms of our story. I mean, I'll add that, that, um, you know, many other historians wrote, you know, letters of protest or whatever. I think what's a little bit different about what we did is that we began to write a letter of protest um, and then we just started to look at the use of sources and it's just clearly academic misconduct. It's not just like his interpretations are bad and it's not just weird to overturn 30 decades of scholarship with eight pages, you know what I mean? Which is just not yeah. like something that can be done. It was actually active academic misconduct. 
Um, and so, you know, in our great kind of naivete also, I think we just figured that we would appeal to this journal that's outside our discipline by just pointing out why the sources are not good and the use yeah. of them is wrong. And I will say the heavy source lifting, really, it was Hannah Sayaka um, and Amy who really did the heavy lifting. It's not really my period. I do post-war history. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I got really mad about the things I looked at, but they weren't just really as important. They were more things like I would look up a page he'd written, he'd uh, cited in a book from the 70s, and I would look at that page, and it would not only not have the evidence he said it was pointing to, it would be evidence that countered his claims. Mm -hmm. Like it would be about right. how Korean soldiers helped Korean comfort women escape because they felt bad for their country women, or it would be about, you know, comfort women's suicides, or it would be like, it was just yeah. completely egregious. So we thought if we just did this like 33 page mic drop, like where we just are like yeah, really yeah. straightforward, we just figured that the, journal would see this and be like, well, this is obviously academic misconduct. And I think that what has been upsetting is when did we submit it to the journal? I guess we finished it in mid-February and now it's what, June? And there's still an expression of concern on the website, but we've just been completely stonewalled by the the journal. Wait, uh, yeah. sorry, what's the journal called again? So it's called International Review of Law and Economics. Okay. So I'd never heard of this before. I yeah, no, nor had I. I yeah. mean, who has? It sounds, it sounds very official. And if, like, <laughs> yes. if someone told me this was the number one journal of law <laughs> yeah. economics, I'd yeah. be like, yeah, sure. But yeah. it could also be like, it was started last year and is a, you know, total like, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm sure it's not, but I'm sure it's. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems to be a, it's a real journal. Um, I, but it, it, it's not a, a top journal in its field. And, um, I mean, and, and it's not like, I guess the frustrating thing is I've talked with a couple of former associate editors at this point who have also left the journal. I think maybe three or four of them have also left the journal. And associate editors, apparently they... Over they, this issue. Over this issue, over this article. Yeah, well, yeah. Apparently they were not involved at all in the screening it in the beginning, but once it was published and they raised their concerns, and these are people who in many cases are have passing familiarity with this piece. And even if they didn't have passing familiarity, they realized that this was a historical argument that didn't belong in in this journal. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we, in our interactions with the, the editors, you know, one of the editors has just insisted that, you know, this is a, a point of debate and this is a contribution. You know, the question is, is this a contribution to law and economics as a subfield? And it's like, well, then what are, what is reality? Like, if, you know, what is reality <laughs> right. to your field is a question I have. And, um, <laughs> yeah. wait, can we back up? Um, yeah, of course. Just to, just to give us more of a, like a concrete sense of all this. So how did this begin? How did it go from, um, you finding out this, I guess I'm sure everyone in Japan studies, this was probably like passed around by some email. Like, did you see this? Did you see this? Yeah. How did that lead to, we will now team up? Because yeah. this is, you know, for, for listeners who don't know, like, this is kind of unusual. Yeah. Uh, and historians are kind of, I don't know if we're famously, but we are, we're I would say, cooperating. we never work together. No, we never <laughs> do. We, yeah, we never work together. And if we do work together, we want to definitely have been two tops, right? Never five. <laughs> yes. And like, we're not like scientists, like 30 bylines yes, on an article. No. 
<laughs> and it's typically we usually you know especially young ones like us like we don't do this stuff for free we usually like want something good like it's um, <laughs> yeah. an article that got published in a book or yeah. something like that or yeah. in a journal um although i think you know this is definitely something that should go in your cv um but yeah how did this begin this sounds like very yeah what's well, the word non, non-calculating a decision to do <laughs> yeah. so generous well, <laughs> well i mean for me personally it, it came to me in february and i should note that the japanese academic calendar is such that in february and march i don't teach classes so i had i had some time and i you know i i'm done with my first book i'm kind of in like this postpartum like post first book kind of yeah. drift we'll talk, yeah, we'll talk we about we can talk about that yeah. drift um, yeah, yeah. so i mean and uh so hannah i saw hannah's twit twit her hannah's twit tweet about it <laughs> and um Care, careful <laughs> sorry <laughs> just one verb away um from a uh, not verb vowel anyway yeah. um so hannah's tweet about it and hannah heard from her friend russell burge who um, is now doing research in Korea. And it was just all over the South Korean news, right? Um, and uh, it also did make it in, into the far right Sankei Shimbun in Japan, which um, which actually was like a real, like the call is coming from inside the house moment because one of my colleagues at Aogaku, different department, but wh- whose office is like two floors under me, he's mm-hmm. the one who wrote the introduction of the Ramsier piece and the Sankei Shimbun being like, this wow. is new cutting edge research. So it felt, you know, it feels kind of close to home. Um, And then so Hannah tweeted about it. And I had heard of this guy because I had seen a talk, an abstract for a talk he'd given that was about Burakumin, which is this historical outcast group, outcased group in Japan. Um, And his abstract for his talk was really suspicious. It was really kind of this like, this is a, a modern identity politics, politics formulation um, you know, like kind of this um, using discrimination to get sort of subsidies, blah, blah, blah. And I remember, and um, and then other people on Twitter started like writing their little encounters with him and his work. With and it just, there, yeah. Yeah, it started to sound really egregious. I had already written to Harry about this before, to Harry Heratunian about this before. And Harry was just like, oh, he's crazy. No one takes him seriously. But then in on Twitter, like people kept being like, oh, there's this, there's this, there's this. And it started to look really um, dangerous to ignore. You know, if it happens in a different field, I think sometimes historians are like, well, it doesn't really like, and, and it does seem like a lot of historians in Japanese history were kind of like, we're just going to, um, uh, what do they call it? Like mokusatsu? We're going to kill it with silence? Like, we're just okay, not going to, yeah. like, moku, well, anyways. Ignore <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. Con- characters you but we're just gonna like ignore it and it will oh, die yeah. kind of thing yeah. yeah yeah and uh it didn't you know it just found kind of currency in in other places and he managed to get these arguments and the comfort women is is just one of these arguments that managed to make it into a peer-reviewed piece um there are other arguments about uh about burakumin about okinawans about communities that have nuclear reactors, about... Um, like those communities would be complaining to the government about yeah. their communities. Well... And they're trying to deny it or no. It's like their that. fault that the nuclear reactors are there. Like they asked for it because right. they wanted subsidies. Which, you know, I mean, in a, in a sense, like, yes, the subsidies have been important, but these are historically neglected regions that... that um, yeah. 
that have just been bled to feed, you know, these urban centers in Japan. So there's, there's a historical context missing. And I'm a historian, so I'm always going to be like, we need the historical context. <laughs> um, but I mean, I actually think that what he's written about Zainichi Korean communities, um, particularly about uh, uh, what happened to them in the, the wake of the 1923 yeah. um, Great Earthquake, and these sort of massacres of them based on rumors that they were starting fires and poisoning wells. I mean, what he has written about them in peer-reviewed pieces actually constitutes a hate crime under Tokyo Metropolitan Law and Kanagawa Law. I mean, this is historical denialism, yeah. Yeah, so uh, what I know is in 23, there's a massive earthquake in Tokyo, like levels half the city, and then Mm -hmm. in the wake of it, there was a lot of rumors that the Korean immigrants and Korea is a colony at this point. So yes, the Korean yeah. immigrants are in Japan as sort of like second class citizens to begin with. I guess the rumors were that they were like stealing stuff or that they were poisoning wells, that they were setting fires because the earthquake happened at noon. And so there were a lot of fires. People were cooking their lunches. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. so, so, and I mean, this is the problem with earthquakes in Japan is like fire is really the scary thing. Um, or anywhere I should say, I suppose. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so rumors they were, were like slaughtered or massacred. Slaughtered. Right? And I mean, like there are these just really ugly stories, like, you know, how do you tell the difference between an ethnic Korean and a Japanese? So they had these like right, phrases right. they would make them say, right, and if right, they right, pronounced right. it in this certain way, they would kill, you know, I mean, and, and the, the thing is that police also were involved in just in spreading the rumors and in the massacres. And, um, so what did Ramsayer say about them? Uh, you know, well, there were these reports about poisoning and fires. These were like official <laughs> reports. So, you know. Maybe maybe they were witches, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> totally. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a these well-established history things, but he seems to, you know, there was a, in, in uh, researching this too, there was kind of a 2006 article or something by one guy in law, one guy in economics in Australia, I'm forgetting their names at the moment, but, you know, they, they wrote about Ramsayer's work in particular. And they said, like, he sets himself up as this debunker. So he'll Mm -hmm. like take some big argument and he'll be like, uh, everybody thinks that there are keiretsu. For example, this was one of his famous arguments in the nineties. Like everybody thinks that there are keiretsu and keiretsu are, I guess, oh my God. (laughs) Gigantic monopolists. Yeah. Yeah. Mitsubishi, Sumitomo. Exactly. And he's like, everyone thinks they're keiretsu. That's an urban myth. And so he does these like big debunking claims. Mm. And then he marshals his evidence. I'm like kind of saying what these uh, scholars wrote. And then he kind of marshals his evidence, ignores anything, you know, dismisses anything that would uh, challenge that and then just forces through a conclusion. And so this seems to be this kind of, pattern and because he can access Japanese language materials in a field where maybe like law and economics where maybe not so many people deal with Japanese language materials um you know I just don't think he's been checked yeah yeah so let me I think maybe to kind of for for non-academic people to kind of clarify I think what's totally perhaps a little bit confusing so he is this endowed chair at Harvard that's one thing right so he automatically gets like bonus points wherever yeah. he goes he can read Japanese. It sounds like he's mm-hmm. you know, studied it for decades and decades, but he's publishing in fields where there's zero knowledge of Japanese language. So he yeah. gets to be the expert. He actually has his title as the Mitsubishi professor right at yeah. Harvard. Yeah. Um, 
And the thing is, he's weighing in on these issues and he's in these disciplines that are contemporary disciplines, right? Like law, economics, like what's going on in Japan today. But to make his arguments, he's dipping into history in a very superficial and probably like um, unethical way. Yeah, yeah. And so for the fact checkers, the five of you, you're all historians, right? Yeah. And so the five of you are like, uh, not just like offended by the politics of his argument, but thinking yeah. like, well, perhaps the best way to challenge his claims is to actually just debunk the history upon which it rests. Yeah. Right? And I mean, I think that if, I mean, originally we'd thought we would have to kind of do this thing where we would, you know, be like, well, you can't ignore the work of this person and that person or whatever. But in the end, all we had to do was go to the footnotes and be like, it's just, you just don't have an argument right. because you are, misciting and twisting evidence and the one case study the one individual case study of a korean comfort woman he discusses moon okju um you know i read her book it's only published in korean and japanese so far i mean what this has done is that um now i don't know if i can well i know people who are translating that memoir into english now so so yeah no it's great um because Munokju was actually uh, trafficked twice across the empire and did not say that she was, you know, voluntary. <laughs> and so, I mean, uh, it's just really, yeah, we didn't even have to bring up like the work of other scholars. And, and it really seems like um, Ramsay and, and many other people, many other denialists are very hostile to the testimony of women. There's this deep misogynistic streak and we didn't even have to kind of get into like the way that testimony has become really important for international legal frameworks or whatever. Um, we just kind of looked at the sources. But yeah, but now I'm feeling really silly and naive because like mm. we tried really hard to be very straightforward and yeah. just figured that this would, yeah, you know, be enough. Yeah, so you've been, yeah, you've been like... Yeah, you were naive. You thought if you just make a good faith effort to do, basically your whole education has taught you if you yeah. look at the sources and make rational, clear arguments about empirical materials, yeah, that you will win the day. And it turns out that's not the case. And I yeah. think the bigger question for all of us, um, you know, for you, but also for like listeners in general, uh, is not so much the historical details, because I think there's no debate really about mm-hmm. the, what really happened, quote unquote. It's more about like, what is going on in Japan? Yeah. What is like, what is yeah. the... Why now? Why? 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 Why this issue? Um, yeah, yeah. I and mean, you mentioned in your nation piece that you there's been a history of this um, of people before you, but also you know you, including you, of uh, journalists, historians making who, who kind of uncover this stuff, getting kind of um, swarmed by these right wingers on yeah. social media, which at this point is like almost, I guess, a universal phenomenon. It's not just Japan specific, but um, it seems like. Yeah, what is it like? Is Japan just becoming a much more of a right lean? Well, I guess the bigger question was, has it always been a right lean country? But yeah, what is going? What's your take on like, yeah, the political wins in Japan the last 10, 20 years? I mean, I really think, well, I mean, the so Paula Curtis just wrote, she does medieval Japanese history, but she just wrote a piece, um, I think in Tokyo Forum, I think it's called, um, about uh, or Tokyo Review, I'm sorry, um, about. Uh, I'm sorry to editors of Tokyo Forum or Tokyo Review and to Paula. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but uh, kind of about the closed ecosystem of the 
cyber nationalists, which is, I guess, how um, I choose to translate neto uyo, which is the internet right. Um, mm-hmm. They seem to really be in this closed system. Um, their information is coming from like, is kind of just bouncing around in this echo chamber. Um, I, and, you know, it was even quite interesting to see how difficult it was for them to like figure out who we were. Like when we wrote this piece, they knew that somehow Ramsayer's article was under attack. And then it took them a while for them to like kind of, you know, dox us or like out us mm-hmm. as the people who'd mm-hmm. written this, even though our names and affiliations are like clearly <laughs> on the. This is a good clue open, right here. <laughs> yeah, open Google Doc. Um, it's like, you know, I will, like one person was like, I will announce who these people are and like announced us, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it kind of seemed hard for them to get information from other sources already, even just online. Um, but I guess the more disturbing thing really is that there are politicians who are building their platforms on this and the Japanese government is really committed to playing this very ambiguous game. And I mean, the second you start saying like, Oh, the Japanese government and an ambiguous game, that sounds very much like the, I don't know, the culturalist interpretation of the inscrutable Japanese government, like playing Mm. this like ambiguous game. But I think that there are real limits between what people can access in English and Japanese. I'm, I'm constantly surprised at like how Japan seems to be big enough, you know, just big enough that um, people in Japan often stay within the Japanese only media or whatever. And the Japanese government, um, uh, you know, basically under Abe most particularly, but even before that, um, you know, with Kuizumi and, and whatnot has really been, um, doing this, like there is no coercion, but not overturning the Kono statement of 1993 that did recognize coercion of comfort women. So every time they're asked point blank, like a uh, Suga when he was uh, Prime Minister Suga, the, yeah. when he was in the cabinet, when he was in Abe's cabinet, he said when he was asked point blank if Japan is rescinding the Kono statement, was like, no, 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 we uphold the Kono statement by by foreign journalists when he was asked. So there is this like. Because to walk back the Kono statement yeah. will be a big problem with the United States, South Korea, of course, but like with the global community. Um, yeah. Whereas, so the Kono, yeah. Sorry to clarify, Kono statement yeah. is 93? 1993. Yeah. And Japan acknowledges mm-hmm. the comfort woman history that it, that it happened. Yeah. Do they also pay reparations of some sort? So the reparations happen between this really kind of... Um, circuitous way they set up something called the asian women's fund which is a private fund Uh and then the japanese government gave a certain amount of money to the asian women's fund and then invited private citizens to donate so it was a kind of way for people to assuage 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 i say assuage but people say i don't know i know i know words from books not talking (laughs) (laughs) you know to to help people deal with their personal guilt about this um, and to be like, we gave some money, but it was not this official mm-hmm. channel. So it allows this ambiguity. And then recently under Abe, they did this like, um, uh, review of the origin of the Kono statement to kind of mm-hmm. be like, actually it was because of pressure from South Korea that Japan did this statement. Um, but again, it's a lot of walking back and it's actually just inserting ambiguity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, what is- yeah. Why is it important? What a why is it important for the 
Japanese government, the current prime minister Suga, mm-hmm. why is it important to not to walk it back officially? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, why does would it unravel relationships with South Korea or something? I think it would also become a really big problem in the states. Um, United States. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the diaspora population in the states has been really important for a lot Korean of this diaspora. war memory stuff. The Korean yeah. diaspora for sure, but yeah. then also like um, uh, Miki Dezaki, who's a Japanese American filmmaker made a, um, a documentary called the main battlefield of the comfort woman issue. It's Shusenjo in Japanese. It's a kind of catchier mm-hmm. title in Japanese and, Oh, you should watch it. It really like, um, it really, it, he interviews these far right people and really shows their, uh, inconsistencies and, I don't know what mm-hmm. you call it, like hoists them by their own batards or whatever. Like mm-hmm. um, there's an ongoing lawsuit about it in Japan. So it's actually very hard to get this film in Japan. Yeah. Um, but he's talking about the main battleground being the United States about this history. Um, you know, and, and again, like, I don't know, there are some right, city yeah. governments. Didn't Philadelphia issue some kind of statement about the Ramsey Pace um, paper? I don't, I don't know. know. Like, San but this, I mean, this, is something, this is something we talked about in February, which is that... Um, you know, when this when we had our episode, which is that, you know, Ramsar is in the United States. He's a Harvard professor. Yeah. And this debate is happening. It's not happening in Japan. It's not happening. Yeah. I mean, am I wrong? It's not happening in Japan. It's not happening in South Korea. United States yeah. as a sort of, this is something we also get into. Yeah. United States, you know, listeners may or may not know, like, is like the, I don't know what the, like, not the parent or the, the, the big sibling. It's like mm-hmm. this, it's a thing that, that knits together a lot of these countries in East Asia historically and totally. so when there's a dispute between south korea and japan um one way for them to kind of uh, to like deal with the dispute is to appeal to the united states yeah. as the sort of authority yeah. figure is that is that is that a fair yeah i mean what- i think so how is this shaken out in japan well i mean there's a there are several historians associations in japan that signed a letter that that was that's just very unambiguous and just very clear that it's like decades of historical research has come to the conclusion that there was coercion. And I mean, like the coercion, like was there coercion with the comfort women issue is like, was there coercion with military conscription? I mean, like who in the late 1930s, 1940s, Japan was like free to be a rational choice actor. I don't know. You know, that's just not the way the power was working at the time. I don't think it works in 2021 either. Yeah, or ever, right? Yeah. Yeah. uh, but yeah, no, you, you mentioned yeah. that this was, you know, on the on the cutting room floor of your nation piece. But this was something you were um, kind of curious about when you read Ramsey's piece, right? This whole rational rational choice theory, I think yeah. it's called, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, do you want to kind of explain, like, what what does he do with it, and how does like what it what what is your your observation about how he uses it in his argument? Yeah. So what I, I got very curious about how it was possible, because I mean, this has really been like a, a culture shock moment for a historian to to deal with um, rational choice arguments. And I'm actually a historian in an econ- economics department, so I should have more savvy or or something about this. But um, I, I mean, historians can be really insufferable, I guess, also, because we're always like, well, we need to go back to this earlier moment. Under, and actually, we need to go even further back to this earlier. And actually, like, you know, what do we even mean by student a hundred years ago? It doesn't even mean the same thing or whatever. Um, but the, with rational choice, and I mean, also really game theory, like I really have a, I really have a problem with game theory 
being a discipline. And it's not like I understand it. So it's not like fully. <laughs> so it's not like I can really go after it, I guess. Um, yeah. But uh, but Sayaka actually was really fun through this because Sayaka was, is a reformed poli-sci student. Mm, like she yeah, did her right. master's in political science. Um, so rational choice, I got curious about it. And I was looking back at some of Ramsier's like earlier work and uh, he was um, was part of this group of people introducing more rational choice into Asian studies. Uh, and, you know, for reasons that I think you and I would be, I don't know, sympathetic to in a sense, in as yeah. much as a lot of the work about Asia in the 70s and 80s, especially about Japan, was very um, uh, essentializing, uh, but also with the cooperation of many scholars in Japan, right? Being mm -hmm. like, the reason our economy is booming is because of our, you know, Japanese values or whatever. This Nihonji yeah, yeah. non or like Japanese yeah. some sort of cultural essentialism. Um, and so, uh, you know, Ramsayer grew up in Japan. He was the son of Mennonite missionaries. Uh, he went to kindergarten and elementary school in Japan. Um, I always make the joke that my kid has the same credentials as him. Now I make that joke. <laughs> <laughs> monster is in, in, in the bedroom. <laughs> I know. Well, he did tell me. He's like, Mama, I know everything there is about Japan because I was born in Japan. My kid oh my said God. that. I was like, yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> but um, so he is getting started on his career as a Japanese hand. I know, right? Um, well, um, but uh, but I mean, like, I think that you know, oh, again, in this generation of people who did Asian studies, it's even more egregious, maybe with Chinese studies, is that many people did not spend much time in Asia. Um, in Japan, though, like I thought. So I mean, no, people did up. spend time in people did spend time in Japan, but I, I think that there were varying levels of facility with the language. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Sure. You know, um, so, so people really couldn't speak back then. They would just like uh, show up and be like. Well, I mean, I don't know if they. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they like couldn't speak. I mean, I'm not going to say like right. how how much people could speak or not yeah. speak, and I also don't think like speaking. You know, I mean, I just think people had like less. Uh, uh, I think it was easier for someone to be like, I grew up in Japan and therefore I am one of these few people in the room who's going to be completely comfortable right. in both yeah. languages. I think there were fewer people in the field. Yeah. So I think maybe to zoom out, the context of this is my understanding is, you know, after World War II, Japan is the Japanese empire has been kind of taken apart or, you know, taken over by the United States, however you want to put it. And there's a huge boom of interest in the United States Academy in Japan, but not a lot of people had experience going there yet, right? So there's mm -hmm. this, yeah, these yeah, early yeah. generations in the 50s and yeah. 60s, there's lots of money flying around yeah. to like just go to Japan, study there, live there. Um, but they got a lot of privileges to live there, I, I, I can assume. Um, yeah. And so, and we're referring to then, uh, Chelsea, in terms of like, Nihonjinon or Japanese cultural studies, you know, this is still very mainstream today. This depictions of what makes Japan special is mm -hmm. this, or what, what explains Japan as yeah. this, this weird place yeah. is like, it's what's particular and specific and unique. Mm -hmm. If you want to think of like Jiro, Jinzo Sushi, that kind of oh, movie, totally, right? It's all yeah. about how Jiro can never come from any part of the world, but yeah. Japan, yeah. right? That kind of thing. And, um, you know, like I think, you know, Chelsea and, you know me and all our friends i think 
there's this pushback that says like that's kind of racist to say mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. And we should think of Japanese people as as Chinese people, as you know, any people, Indian people, as South people. Asian, South, yeah, as people, <laughs> right? And and we shouldn't create these basically like culturalist, yeah, uh, ways of looking at the world. Yeah. Now, what well, Ramsayer is doing. Can yeah. I add just one thing on that too, which I think is important to note is the Cold War. I mean, the Cold War context also, and also the wartime context of the the idea that you you have to know your enemy, right? Like yeah. you have to know your enemy, um, right, right, and right. so there's there's already this kind of uh, uh, you know othering that's happening in within the Cold War too. Like a lot of this money gets flung around because it's like, well, we have to know. Right. Um, these other places because it could possibly be threats to us yeah, or, or whatever sure. too. Yeah. That drives so much foreign research yeah. today. Yeah. Um, in the whole world. Well, I mean, <laughs> and like a lot of, a lot of the first generation of, of, of scholars who came out of, you know, the, um, came out of the post-war period also were with the occupation as army translators, right? Like they, mm, they yeah. were in the army, they were in based in Japan. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm not like my Japanese is my Japanese is passable. It could be better. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm not going to be like they didn't speak. Chelsea, Japanese. Chelsea sounds very good. I'll tell the listeners <laughs> this. Anyway, the point is Ramsey. <laughs> yeah. The reason you brought this all up was because Ramsey, what he does in this article is basically say my this is what my take on rational choice theory is as someone mm-hmm. who doesn't do it either, is that these um, social scientists who are not writing very well researched articles mm-hmm. are just saying, let, if, let us just imagine that everyone thinks exactly the same. Yes. They're a utility maximizing individual, which mm-hmm. is basically they're all capitalists, mm-hmm. right? Everyone is just born the same to get as much as possible out of everyone else. And they think in terms of individuals, not families. They have no values whatsoever, except yeah. for the value of um, weighing pros and cons in all situations. Totally. Yeah. And they all have complete agency over their yeah. situation. No such thing as coercion, no such thing as slavery, no such thing as et cetera, et cetera. And the scholars will just say, well, if we just imagine everyone is like this, then uh, they just kind of jump to these conclusions. Well, that explains why wages, you know, for enslaved workers were so low or so high or something like that. Right. And so it seems like what Ramsay was doing in these articles with Comfort Woman is to just say, let's just assume everyone was a free agent. There was no coercion. And then you might cherry pick one or two pieces of evidence along the way, but it's certainly not a robust recreation of the past right Mm -hmm. yeah and this is this sort of he's using like a methodological strategy as a substitute for actually like looking at what really happened and that's kind of his way of yeah um, it sounds like that's his way of just sidestepping this question of what really happened yeah yeah and i mean i think i think that that i am sympathetic as as you noted like i am sympathetic i think you were sympathetic to trying to find more similarities and trying to understand differences as, as like differences of history, you know, <laughs> looking at the, the history rather than as unchanging essentials, like embedded in people or whatever. Um, and so, but I think the, the problem with the rational choice model is yeah, that you're assuming that everybody is uh, yeah. a homo economist or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and Chalmers Johnson, who is a, one of these self-admitted cold warriors um, got really worried about, uh, rational choice, particularly with the end of the Cold War. I mean, Chalmers Johnson then wrote that whole blowback series about yeah. how yeah. the United States kind of created the conditions for 9-11, right? Yeah, yeah. And so Chalmers Johnson uh, is kind of this interesting, like, 
total cold warrior Japan historian um, and was on board with that project when the Cold War went under, he thought that rational choice was dangerous because it assumed was just like, there's no ideology, kind of like Francis Fukuyama, end of history, great. Like, it's true. Everybody is just a rational yeah. capitalist being. Um, and and he, he called out Ramsayer specifically uh, for that critique. Um, and then I think that the turn, but the more insidious kind of turn I mean, cherry picking is cherry picking. And I think that no matter what happens, I probably will look at law and economics papers and be like, this is cherry picking. You know, like, what about, yeah. you know, like fleshing this out? Um, but Ramsayer did seem to take a really hard turn around like 2019 or so when he goes after these sort of specifically right wing things. And that did seem to coincide with him spending a summer at a university called Beitaku University, which is... Um, a very ideological <laughs> university mm-hmm. um, uh, and is very deeply invested in a lot of historical revisionist, like anti-so-called masochistic history projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of money in that. There's a lot of money in that to be had in Japan. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the other topics, historical topics? Because again, I think this is interesting because I think these are reflecting politics in the present, right? But it's interesting that it's all getting channeled through these historical debates over stuff that happened 80 years ago. Yeah. Um, Or, yeah, 80 more or less years ago. Um, What are some of the other things that are um, battlegrounds for the Japanese, right? Nanjing Massacre. Nanjing Massacre, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Also, the, like, you know, the... Japan was caged in by ABCD and could do nothing but fight like ABCD meaning America, Britain, China, Dutch. Right. So, so the, the idea that Japan had to, had to fight, was reluctant to fight, uh, but they just had to fight. Not, and, um, so they weren't an empire. They weren't an empire. I mean, they just, they had to like, you know, it was an embargo and it, it was, uh, right. deadly to the Japanese people. And it wasn't about, you know, continuing a land war in China or something. Um, I mean, I think what's troubling about this is that, and I experienced this with some of the like cyber nationalism, uh, the, the kind of toxic <laughs> trolling I got online is that, you know, there's just a lot of whataboutism or like, well, why aren't you talking about what the U S military did in Okinawa? And, and, um, yeah, as if you if you bring up one, we can't sit and have yeah. a sustained discussion of one without immediately, you know, bringing up another and and uh, or what's that thing Erdo, Erdogan right in Turkey was yeah. like, well, if if Biden's going to recognize the Armenian genocide, I'm going to recognize the Native American genocide. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think we joked about this in February, but it really does seem like um, there's like a whole like series of tankies, yeah. national tankies, yeah, where. Um, because like if you, uh, like the, you know the one I'm familiar with is like the Chinese tankies phenomenon where if you look at like what they, how they construe basically anything of the last 100 200 years and you look at like the kind of mainstream accepted version of it there's like two alternate realities that are getting yeah. set up to conform to political um, nationalist political views and it seems like Japan's right is also kind of Japanese tankies um and I think you also mentioned I forget the piece or just like we talked about this before, like they are very wary of China. And so they really go all in, I think, on Hong Kong and mm-hmm. Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this weird 
I don't know what to think about this, but there's a real convergence between them and like Taiwanese nationalism mm, where, mm-hmm. I, so this is back in February when you told me about these um, Neto Yoku who were, they were like, in between tweeting about Ramsire, they were like promoting Taiwanese pineapples. Yeah, totally. yes. Oh, we have because, Taiwanese pineapples everywhere in Tokyo yeah. these days. Yeah. <laughs> because so I mean, Taiwan pineapple industry, they're delicious. Pineapple's great. Um, <laughs> and for whatever reason, China you can imagine if you're Taiwan, like you want to export your pineapples. You can't just make yeah. that much money selling to Taiwanese people. Um so China is a big destination market for pineapples. I don't know why, but China like banned the import of them, maybe for COVID reasons. And so the Jap- the Taiwanese pineapple industry was like you know, well, we're fucked. Um, so they were kept like going on this PR battle to make Taiwanese pineapples, um, just kind of pushing them to all their allies. Mike Pompeo famously <laughs> like recorded a Twitter video of him eating Taiwanese pineapples. Right. Wow. So, yeah. so yeah. So, and there's, and like, uh, I go to, when I go to Taiwan, like Taiwanese nationalism, Taiwanese, Taiwanese pride doesn't seem right wing. It seems like very like, like very natural and um you know like taiwan is a very liberal country and so on and so forth but then they make these weird bedfellows because of national interests like they're both common enemy as china you know yeah yeah um so there's this weird thing going on where if you look at like yeah it's, it's weird like you know these these national configurations these constellations of like japanese right chinese right uh, i don't want to say taiwanese right but like let's say taiwanese nationalists and united states mm-hmm. they like have all these takes on things that they don't necessarily need to have a take on you know like yeah the nanjing massacre or yeah. like xinjiang or the armenian genocide right yeah but these all become like battlegrounds yeah for i don't know like declaring allegiance to this or that team or country right basically we're talking about um yeah it's weird i mean i don't know if this is like a unique moment maybe this is how nationalism always works um but it does seem striking that we have these like alternate realities that are just kind of bound by national boundaries um these these days i don't know if that's intensifying yeah, or, or i mean what. i also feel like so so as somebody working in gender studies um like the there's this kind of anti-gender politics that is shaping up as a, mm. it kind of doesn't mean anything like on its own to be anti quote unquote, anti-gender. Sometimes it's called like, like attacks gender ideology. It's like attacking the very concept of gender. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be a way to build a larger tent for a lot of different movements. Many of them on the far right. Do you mean it's anti-feminist? Yes, it is connected to anti-feminist, but like it really does articulate itself as being anti-gender, like and sometimes gender ideology in Japan in the 1990s, maybe it had its first iteration as being anti-gender free because gender free was used as this term for like goal for education, um, which I mean, you know, was they could spin it in the 90s into like being like, you're not going to know the boys, boys won't know their boys and girls won't know their girls. But it was really just literally about like, maybe we should have one name list for students in elementary school instead of a name list for boys and a name list for girls. So this is analogous to like the whole trans, anti-trans thing in the United States. I think it's very, I mean, yeah, that that's happening in Japan too. And I guess I became really sensitive to it also because there's the history of backlash in Japan from the 90s that we live with today where it's like you talk about uh, when you talk about gender equality in Japan, in Japanese, you don't use the word gender. 
they use danjo kyodo sankaku or whatever, which means like, you know, uh, male, men, female. male, female, uh, kyodo, which is more like cooperation. So it's not mm, equality mm. either. And it's more like, you know, we all have our roles, like boys with boys and girls. Like, it's very insidious, I think. And in Hungary, when gender studies was banned by the government, um, that's when I started to kind of be like, huh, it's like a... In, it's a kind of it just be, it's be, it's become a complete rallying cry in Eastern in Eastern Europe, like yeah. anti gender ideology. Um, so you think that it's um, and you think something happening is, is similar is happening in Japan? I think so. I think in Japan it's a little bit more like um, it's discussed in terms of empowering women. And I mean, in this sense, I think it really does tap into a lot of the transphobia stuff where it's like women have been scapegoats in Japanese society for a long time in a lot of ways. And now Japanese women who feel like they've made certain amount of gains seem to be talking about, you know, the sphere of transgender women, you know, in bathrooms and sports, it's like the usual things. Um, and I mean, again, I guess this, you know, I, I just said earlier, like there seems to be a closed right wing ecosystem, mm-hmm. but at certain loads and at certain nodes, there is communication. I mean, Steve Bannon, I mean, I, I hate like sounding like really paranoid and conspiracy theory about this stuff, but like, you know, that Victor Orban and I'm Hungarian, so I'm going to focus on this, but like, you know, that Victor Orban's idea of illiberal democracy has inspired other people to talk about illiberal democracy. And we know that Bannon was in Eastern Europe and he was in Japan and he called Abe Trump before Trump. And like, Hmm. um, yeah, I guess, I guess one question, I I guess one question is, you know, this is probably a 10,000 foot view question, which is (laughs) good. I think, but everyone, I think everyone is generally familiar with the fact that like in the eighties and nineties, it seemed like Japan was by far the number one country in Asia. Yeah. And might even come for the United States as the number one country in the world. There's real Japanophobia in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Japanophilia, Japanophobia, right? Yeah. Um, personified by like Toyota cars overtaking Detroit cars. Yeah. And since then, I think now in the rest of the world, all we hear about is China. Oh, right? yeah. Like China is like, right. But I, I still maintain that if you go to East Asia, culturally, in a pop culture kind of sense, Japan is mm. still very dominant. Maybe that's changed since I last been in Asia. But I feel like uh, Japan is therefore in this weird, but also Japan isn't really going anywhere. They're still like, you know, top three or four country in the world in terms of GDP and all that stuff. So it's not like Japan has disappeared from its heyday. And so I guess what I'm thinking is Japan is uh, in this situation where it once was number one, it has now been demoted and it has all these you know, structural issues, you know, it's it has space that a flat economy since 97 mm-hmm. population is shrinking and so on and so forth. And in a sense there, that kind of re uh, reinforces this right wing paranoia mm-hmm. that something has gone wrong, that Japan should be great or once was great mm-hmm. before. And uh, I don't know, as a way to perhaps deal with their sense of insecurity, that things are going to get worse deal with their sense that it's outside forces that's mm-hmm. made Japan go around, et cetera. That's kind of created this very fearful right-wing response in Japan. Um, and that's kind of the way to think about Japan in 2021 versus mm-hmm. 2000 versus 1980. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Is yeah. That, I mean, uh, what I think is so interesting is so, so those, so those pieces where like Chalmers Johnson, the cold warrior attacks Ramsayer after the cold war What's kind of interesting about that piece 
is that China is nowhere. Like people mm. are still like talking about like, well, we have to understand Japan. And it's like, uh, these are just not the people you expect to be blindsided by China. <laughs> you know, like they should have been. Do you think, yeah. Do you think people studying Japan were totally like, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think that they're like, and I think we're at risk of being blindsided by, um, you know, not, maybe not necessarily Japan. I think like maybe people can only like keep one place in mind, like their mind in, at a time. They're like, okay, you know, yeah. in this region, I think of this place in this region, I think yeah, of that yeah. place. Um, I, but I mean, I think we do risk being blindsided by Japan. I mean, Japan has a large military budget. They quote unquote, don't have a real military, but they do. Um, and it's the world's third largest economy, which like proportional to population is still pretty crazy. Um, yeah. and it, it has its fingers in all kinds of pies, uh, globally, um, in ways that are often really interesting. Um, I've gotten really curious about Japan's relationship with Iran after the 1950s and, and stuff. And, um, I, you know, but I, but I think that a problem is if you see Japan isolated or you only see like U.S. Japan, U.S. Japan, U.S. Japan. And like I've written a thousand grants that are like, you know, they're looking for people who will build a bridge between U.S. Japan. And I think that that happens between like, you know, U.S. China stuff too. like, right. It like either really focuses on the U.S. and probably, you know, for good reason, because the U.S. still has is speaking of proportional economy to population is like really disproportional. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, I mean, I get, I get really stressed when I hear xenophobic and jingoistic stuff in Japan, because um, I think that, that uh, I don't know. I think, I think it's, it's quite tense and it has been tense for a long time between China and Japan. In Japan. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to make a prediction here because I just don't yeah. know. And like, right, plus right, I'm like right. right here. So like when I see myself on a map, I'm like, I don't know. We're like right yeah, here. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting because, you know, obviously you went to undergrad and grad school in the United States, but now you've been in Japan. I mean, you obviously lived there before, but now it sounds like you're saying having been in Japan on a day-to-day basis the last couple of years, you've become more aware like in the united states we, you're right i think you're right like there basically can be only one Asian can be only one at a time right yeah, yeah. exactly um and so it's like 100 percent japan now it's 100 percent china when in reality it's this constellation of tons of rich powerful countries all next to each other um and you know obviously the comfort woman um the ramsay article is really about you could also make the argument about Japan is feeling insecure about rising South Korea. Mm-hmm. Right? Like South Korea is smaller and, you know, maybe it's, I don't know if it's seen as any sort of threat, but like, you know, very clearly it's won the culture war mm-hmm. uh, competition between the two. And, you know, maybe Japan is feeling, you know, kind of sweating that maybe South Korea will catch up to them in the industrial or whatever, like the other, the other yeah. sort of economic or military. I mean, it's, it's um, so, yeah. The- Oh, so the soft power thing is really interesting, though, because like, so my first, so one of the first times, not the first time I lived in Japan, but it was in the early 2000s when like, the whole South Korean soap opera thing was really popular in Japan. And there were so many people like, I just remember the mood was, there had been the the international tribunal that was like, supposed to be about 
sexual war crimes that was that brought together like feminists and women and, and former comfort women from across Asia. And that was supposed to like be like, okay, comfort women, coercion, we got it. And then like Korean, South Korean um, pop culture, soap operas became really popular in Japan. And it was like, okay, like now, uh, you know, relations have been mended. <laughs> and it, they- So um, are K-dramas on all the time in Japan? They were in the early 2000s. They were incredibly popular. And, and I had a not. Korean boyfriend at the time. And like people, <laughs> just, it was like a, a, you know, people were just like incredibly into- Korean stuff. Their idea though was that Korean men were very sensitive. And <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but um so there was like this idea that like these things had been solved. And like now, but these now things, is, is there a backlash? Both yes and no. I mean, like when I talk to my students, my incoming students, I ask them like their favorite music, and like they freaking love K-pop. Mm-hmm. So many of my young students love K-pop. And I guess. I guess maybe it should also be telling, like, I didn't really even take this comfort woman thing. I always took it seriously, but I didn't really become committed to teaching it until when I was teaching in Japan, one of my students who's from South Korea Hmm. told me about taking a class with another professor. And this is not at the university I teach at now, but one student from South Korea, a guy who told me that this other older professor teaching at the same university had told him that comfort women were just made up by the American military after the war. And it made me so angry. And my student's reaction was, well, he's old and he'll die soon. So whatever, like who cares what he says? And I feel like maybe I had maybe a similar feeling like, okay, well this like older generation will just kind of like die off and take their prejudices with them to the grave. But then I kept seeing Japanese students who Young just ones, like, yeah. were like, I don't know what to think. Like what, like, and again, yeah. it's this ambiguity that's been inserted and um, there's hope that maybe like a soft culture thing could help. I do think, I mean, it's Korea is so close and a lot of my students go and they have fun and like they make friends, but I also feel old enough to be cynical about how far can like friendship with people that are different from you alter the political level. Right. You know what I mean? Or how yeah. much is it more like we just have fun and we eat food together and like, Oh, I love baby bop. And then like when push comes to shove, you know, it's like, why right. should Mitsubishi have to pay these people? Yeah. 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 Her yeah. forced labor. Yeah. You mentioned in your piece that, you have this reaction from your students that they actually never learn comfort woman mm-hmm. history in their, I guess, high school Japan history 101 classes. Um, but you think that the average Japanese student is never formally taught about comfort women, about Nanjing, about imperialism, you know, in the region. Yeah. And I think this is where specificity is just important because I think a lot of times in Japan, young people are like, war is really bad and bad stuff happened, but they don't get the specific dynamics. They don't get the specific specificity in terms of, you know, who is still living with that. And it's not just like the, the victims. I mean, I don't want to decenter the victims at all, but it's also like, well, you know, my brother was in the military in the U S military. And like, when your country goes to war, you kill people like people, young, young people go and kill people. And that hurts them too. 
and I'm, again, I'm not going to be like my family, you know, like, I mean, yeah, you know, um, the Iraqi people are like, and <laughs> people in Afghanistan have suffered much more from this, but like, <laughs> I just think that like, you know, emphasizing, you know, when, when I encounter this right wing version of the history, it's just like this totally glorifying thing about like the sacrifices that people made for the country. And you see this in the United States too, the sacrifices that people made without talking about like, um, uh, you know, the mental health issues, the PTSD, the suicides, the alcohol abuse afterwards, all this stuff you see in post-war Japan. And it's very like cleaned up in the 1960s. And if you talk to people individually about their family history, they'll be like, yeah, I mean, actually I discovered leftist politics in Japan, which is kind of funny. Like I keep talking about the rightist politics, but, um, yeah, my host mom in Japan, when I lived here in high school was just like, my dad would grow, would wake up screaming in the middle of the night and he Mm. could never articulate or talk about what happened to him, Mm. took it to the grave, you know, like, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So you think, uh, I mean, this is something that, um, has been written about, but like Japan, I think maybe people have a basic sense of this, like Japan, didn't ne- never really had a real reckoning with the war or yes. in the Japanese empire for a lot of reasons. You can argue, you know, did Germany, did, did any of these countries mm-hmm. um, and a lot of other countries have never obviously um, seen their empire fall apart because they still have it. Um, yeah. But I think people may not know is like the United States really played a large role yeah. in kind of sidestepping all those questions, including the comfort woman question, yeah. which you mentioned in your article. Like, wh- I mean, just as a basic like one-on-one, like what is, what is that relationship between the Japan and the United States Yeah, where um, the Japan we know today is like, why, 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 how does Jap- United States involvement lead to Japan never really having a reckoning with their imperial past? Yeah. I think it really froze, you know, the cold war really froze a lot of this history and this is why a lot of this comes out so late and is so difficult to work through. And, um, I mean, you and I both, both, uh, have exposure to Carol Gluck's work at, at Columbia yeah. university. And she was very insistent that it's kind of, you see this in Eastern Europe as well as East Asia because of the way that, you know, the Soviet union in the Eastern Bloc and then, and the United States in, in East Asia kind of, um, uh, suppressed a certain kind of working through, for strategical reasons. Oh, this is my school bell. You might hear the school <laughs> chime. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, so in the terms of the United States, I mean, the United States, there's this kind of first impulse is to demilitarize and democratize Japan immediately after 1945, writing a new constitution and whatnot. But very quickly, the new fear and the new enemy became the Soviet Union. And then what was happening in China? Um uh, with the, the Communist Party coming to power. Um, and very quickly, there was a, a de-purging of purged people who had been purged, right-wingers who had been purged after immediately after World War II became re, uh, de-purged. Reinstated. Reinstated. <laughs> reinstated. The yeah, term is yeah. de-purged, but it's kind of gross. It's like, <laughs> it's like you purged, you like threw up, and then you like eat right. it again. So... <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, yeah, like, I mean, when you look at who's in power from the 1950s onward, like everybody was involved in Manchuria and in the Imperial Project. And, and they kind of re, 
um, define themselves as conservatives. And actually, uh, Reto Hoffman, he's yeah, one of our, our friends friend. from grad school. Who's he's, that? Where is he? Monash? He's at, or no? No, Western Australia University, I think. He's in, um, uh, he's in us. He's, down, down, he's, down under. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's, he's working on this history, right? Yeah, he's working on this history. Like, well, what does it even mean to be conservative? Like, it just becomes this analog for conservative. But these people were fascists, you know, and militarists. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and also, you know, there just wasn't space for people in South Korea or Taiwan or China to bring up these historical issues um not really until the end of the until the end of the cold war and i think i think it's true i mean jay in your episode talking about the comfort women like jay's like is japan like concerned because south korea has been working out like they're like i don't know if you've noticed but like <laughs> I mean, but like it, it's true like i mean there are comfort women from many different countries and the ones that feel empowered to bring this to the the diplomatic table and i would also say like you know i mean the former comfort women have strong disagreements with the South Korean government's handling of this too, because this becomes a political um, ball or something. It's not necessarily always handled the way they want to see it handled, but you just don't really see like the Indonesian government maybe necessarily bringing this in the same way because what they need from the Japanese government might be different. Yeah. 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 I mean like Japan for all it did, or precisely because of how expansive its empire was, um, and world post World War II, Japan is the number one economic power. Yeah, in Asia, and so all these poorer poorer countries are reliant upon Japan, including South Korea, including Taiwan yeah. at first, and then yeah. China, and then Southeast Asia, yeah. and so on and so forth. And and Japan remains number one. Yeah, prim- primarily, be- well, not primarily. A large reason is because the United States wants them to be number one. Yes. Because yes, the United and the States, States needed right. this bulwark, this, the quote-unquote bulwark against communism, mm-hmm. and uh, needed to fight in Southeast Asia to try to secure markets, not just for American capitalism, but for Japanese goods in yeah. Southeast Asia. Um, yeah. So it's absolutely a, a yeah. situation the United States foreign policy also created. Yeah. I think yeah. I think to understand East Asia today, if even if you're just looking at China, or just like you know Taiwan or South Korea or Southeast Asia, you have to I don't know I don't know how much you have to, but I think it makes a lot more sense if you start with the United States Japan after World War II as kind of creating this model, yeah, or this base that yeah. kind of expands to the rest of the region. Um, we why don't we talk really quickly about your book because and the segue i think is you know there are moments in japanese history where japanese students did confront this and one famous moment is 1960 Mm -hmm. the ampo protest which is students in japan were protesting japan just kind of what's the word like rubber stamping or just kind of signing on to the security treaty with the united states that kind of um what sort of cemented this relationship of Japan mm-hmm. as part of this larger United States formal informal empire in the Pacific. Um, and your book is about that moment. It's also more broadly about what is happening in Japan in the 1960s. So we've been talking about the Japanese, right? For yeah. the last hour. Your book is called, oh, by the way, it's called Co-Ed Revolution. Is that right? Yes, Co-Ed Revolution. Co-Ed Revolution, yeah. just out with Duke University Press. 
um, is about the Japanese, what do you call the new left? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, a moment when there was resistance by young people in Japan. And in particular, you're focusing on the, is it about women participants or just kind of the, the centering of gender issues in the, in yeah. the 60s? Yeah. I mean, when I started to look at this issue, so so I just said that I got kind of alerted to leftist politics when I was in Japan in high school. Um, so I first went to Japan when I was 15 and I did not want to go to Japan. I um, am a reluctant Japanologist. Uh, I So my father is Hungarian and we're ethnically German Hungarians, which is a whole complicated history <laughs> of its own. But um, uh, when uh, I was kind of a Europhile and I grew up in this small town, Folsom, California, prison town, and I um, wanted to study abroad. So I applied to a bunch of programs and I ended up going on a Rotary Club program to Japan and they chose the country you go to. So I went to Japan and my family was very like conservative. Uh, Northern California, Rush Limbaugh came to our restaurant kind of family. My dad was a refugee from communism and whatnot. And when I got to Japan, my host family, the mom was of the late 1960s student gen- like student movement and the dad was from 1960 student movement and he had done russian uh language and literature and been to the soviet union and did like soviet nuclear politics and stuff and um uh they kind of would like tell me these stories about these big protests and whatnot that was a kind of felt like a real erased history in Japan, because if you go to Tokyo today, I mean, if you go to a protest in Tokyo today, they're so managed, like it's really hard to imagine someone throwing a rock at the police. Right. Um, and uh, so I got really curious about it there. Uh, and um, yeah, when I started to kind of look at this history, maybe also because I took, you know, women's studies classes or whatever, what just jumped out at me is the way that there were these really prominent female figures and they were uh, especially prominent because they were women and, you know, women in public space, like there's always kind of a collection of stories about them. Like either there are these like heroines uh, uh, and then they have to be like really pure and really great and perfect, or there are these total villainesses. Um, and so I got really curious about that. And then I started asking people about like, well, what was, can you tell me more about like women in the movement? People are like, oh no, no, no. It was mostly a men's movement and like the women just supported it. And then women had women's lib after. And, um, so I got, I was very skeptical about that story and curious about that story. And I also just thought it was interesting that, you know, there, there are these kind of like co-temporalities with the 1960s where Mm -hmm. people weren't really traveling so much. Like these student activists, especially from Japan, they really couldn't leave Japan so easily. Um, And Japan also kind of controlled how much money you could take. It was very hard for people to be abroad. Um, But there were still kind of like similar discussions happening. Um, And you see this at other historical moments too, where these kind of these like people... um, I think because of what the social forces they're subjected to. And in the case of post-war Japan, I think it was this new affluence, but also Mm -hmm. this awareness of the affluence resting on a projection of military power abroad. And in the case of Japan, it's U.S. military power based in Japan, in Korea, and then in uh, in, um, Vietnam and, and Southeast Asia. Yeah. 
And then also like mass education and then also the rapidly transforming social role of the women. And this is an unresolved question, always like the woman question, like how much, like, what do you do with women? Because our modern universal subject is like a male subject who doesn't like have babies or like, you know, (laughs) do, do other things. Um, So yeah, I got, that's kind of where I started. And then I wrote a book and now I kind of dip in and read the book and I'm like, oh, yeah. oh yeah, right. there was that. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of in this process of like forgetting what I wrote now. I don't no, know. it's good. I think it's good because if you fixate on it, then you're gonna start this like book talk. And yeah, sorry. TCSG episode, but yeah, I think it's <laughs> it's traumatic because you start thinking about like, oh, if I did that better, you don't want to get into that. Uh, so uh, big picture, then what did you? What did you find out? So, because you're talking about this moment, you know, you you frame it this new left moment as Japan. Japan did have a leftist tradition. They have a strong communist yeah. tradition mm-hmm. from the twenties twenties onward into the fifties. The Japanese Communist Party actually won seats in the yeah. national diet. Um, so that's like a suppressed history. They're a big party in my in my neighborhood. Oh, they still are. They oh, still people, win seats. Oh yeah, they do. Yeah, oh, okay. they're like okay. they're they're kind of like leaders of the opposition. Um, Although that's problematic from the new left perspective because of the, you know, uh, Budapest 1956 and de-Stalinization mm. and Suez Canal. I mean, the Japanese Communist Party was pretty much towing the Soviet line and also had right, encouraged yeah. college students in the 1950s to like go into the mountainside and like try to do a Chinese revolution, like a kind of mm, yeah. uh, Communist like Party long, sort long of march or something. Yeah, Yeah, which didn't didn't work out (laughs) like elite students like dropped out of college and were like all right we're gonna go get those peasants mobilized and you know for sure yeah so this is a moment where i'm sure everyone is vaguely familiar like 60s you have civil rights you have black power you have um i don't know i guess hippies are more of a 70s thing but there's also the the rumor of the cultural revolution in china Mm -hmm. um and then there's a lot of soul searching when people find out the ussr is rolling tanks into yeah. into its countries and this is where tank where tanky comes from and there's a lot of splits in these left-wing groups around the world in terms of do you unconditionally support the ussr or do you do your own thing and among those splits are do we make everything all about economics or do mm-hmm. we focus on racial sexual gender imperialist oppression yeah. as well vietnam yeah. is a big turning point in the united mm-hmm. states um so you're kind of talking about this debate that I think is unresolved in the United States also, mm-hmm. right? And the, yeah. It's not so much sex versus class. It's most, mostly race versus class is mm-hmm. what still comes up all the time in the U.S. Um, but you're talking about a moment in Japan where, or your book is focusing on, maybe beyond class oppression, we should also focus on sexual oppression and other axes of oppression, right? Yeah. Is that- I mean, I think that, I think that particularly, so when I also kind of zero in on the female student activist, I was kind of curious the way that, you know, in post-war Japan, there is this ascendant myth of, first of all, a homogenous nation, like ethnically homogenous nations. So there's this idea that like in the post-empire, we're all Japanese here, although there are several, um, you know, ethnically Korean people, but suddenly they're not Japanese, right? Like suddenly they don't have Japanese citizenship. And some of them are are effectively paperless, um, especially in the wake of the Korean War and stuff. Um, But there's a myth of ethnic homogeneity. And then there's also uh, a myth of everybody becoming middle class by the 1960s. Many people, like overwhelming majority of people identify themselves as middle class. And these are myths. But within those myths, 
there's still a difference and a distinction that's maintained and that's sexual difference. And that's the difference between men and women. And that also defines a lot of the way that labor is, is divided in Japanese mainstream society in the workplace, but then also I think within the movement. And so I was really interested in these female students also because they're often articulating that or attempting to articulate that or trying to bring in that discussion about actual labor, what we might call care work, right? Like unpaid care Mm -hmm. work. Um, And, and also trying to point out that it's really important for social movements. And I was able to hear that more in my materials when I'd read sort of recent research about the civil rights movement and black power in the United States also that was pointing out that, um, you know, we like really like to focus on charismatic male leaders, but that also like who's serving the tea, who's like driving people places, like who's doing that. Like a speech is awesome and it's very stirring, but it's kind of a one-off thing or, I mean, you know, whereas like keeping the damn thing moving, uh, is the the yep. care work and and that's often like feminized labor. So so I I try to uh yeah, use this particular case and I also wanted I mean, I don't know, people who are not interested in Japanese history will probably or even people who are interested in Japanese history will probably read one book about the 1960s in Japan. Um so I kind of tried to explain what was happening at the same time that also I wanted to uh bring up, you know, not a her story, but also to just point out like the way that what the women were doing was critical. The criticisms they had of the movement were really radical in the sense that they, that they were at the basis of what um, they were getting at or something really basic in Japanese society that the movement also just didn't really want to necessarily deal with. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I think that like a lot of what happened in the new left in Japan and maybe elsewhere is that like a lot of it became about personal liberation and in Japan yeah. it was very coded as like male personal liberation and free sex was male access to female bodies. And like, it's yeah. not really, then it's not about the economic economics of it either. Right. right. Like, yeah. So that's my question. Does it, and cause I think that right now there's a lot of soul searching about did, did the new left basically pave the way for neoliberalism? By, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> In part. Yeah. Great. Great. <laughs> we have an answer. I mean, what, 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 yeah. What's the conclusion about leftist movements in Japan in the sixties and seventies? And you know, what, is there any lessons there for understanding 2021 in Japan? <sighs> Well, I tried to give a talk about Occupy Wall Street to a bunch of former New Left, all male, former New Left Japanese activist men. And um, there were a couple young men. Um, but like, I mean, I don't know. Occupy Wall Street has its own like issues or whatever. But I was yeah. like just trying to teach them like how people were talking about like getting on stack. Like you get on stack and then you can like, you can interrupt for a point of information and once those guys had this like interrupt for a point of information, that's they just like always like had a point of information, which was their opinion about whatever. And the young men didn't talk at all. So like, it was like, you know, I mean, and then Maybe I was, you think it didn't, it didn't change very much. Uh, no. And also like, I've been asked by kind of these older new left men, they were like, you know, no women come to our meetings. You should be on our editorial boards. Like, so women come to our meetings and I'm like, get some women, your own age, some Japanese women, your own age, ask them why they don't want to be there. Yeah. And then, you know, like, um, 
No. And I mean, I think it's incredibly frustrating and, and, um, uh, I, yeah, I've just like heard people just be very dismissive of women as being like part of consumer movements or like being too agreeable or, or whatever, um, in Japan. And, and to me, that's like about an aesthetics of politics more than actual substantive stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you, does the end of your book sort of just wind up like being like, well, this, like how far did this actually get? Or do you feel like there's actually materials there that could, that live on and can help I'm concerned, know, politics today? I think I'm concerned about um, the way that women's empowerment in Japan is completely delinked, delinked from a leftist critique of society. I really see this neoliberal feminist, um, yeah, girl boss feminism or whatever um, in Japan, which, which to me basically is like asking women to do the same work they're always doing on the side, but then asking them to step into certain places. That was my problem with the womenomics rhetoric. The, the, um, the goal is still for the national nation state. I mean, still all about the GDP. It's not about lived lives. In the meantime, you see feminization of poverty in Japan. You see increasing precarity. I mean, with COVID, we have evidence that homelessness is an even bigger problem in Japan. And it's just going to get pushed aside with the Olympics. That's what the Olympics does is like pushes people aside if, if you know, um, that are in these public spaces. So, um, so I really see this kind of like worrying trend towards talking about women's empowerment in this very neoliberal way. And so I, I wanted to have like a leftist genealogy of, um, of feminism in Japan. Uh, because I think that the women that I, that I kind of look at have really interesting takes on things. And I, I, I don't know, like I could probably, I should probably go back and read their stuff again. Um, there's talk, I'm, I'm actually kind of paralyzed because there's talk about translating it into Japanese, but I'm actually quite terrified of the former Japanese new left people reading my book, the men reading my book. No, I mean, <laughs> you should be terrified, but you should also confront it head on. That's, that's the point of writing a book. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I mean, like, there's no point to be shy. There's no point in being shy now. The thing is yeah, published. Yeah, it's out there. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully they don't discover it. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, I think we're we're good on time. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of that we missed that you wanted to kind of? No, I don't know. I mean, I just would invite if people listened this far, I mean, I would just invite people to like, uh, I don't know, take a moment to think about like why the fuck are we doing the Olympics this year? <laughs> That's really like something that, yeah, I, I'm trying to like think of some more. Um, constructive way to like think about how to critique the Olympics other than just being like, why are we doing yeah. this to ourselves? Man, if it becomes like a super spreader site, I mean, which it inevitably will. Oh my God. Like, what is, like, I can't imagine. They're passing out condoms as they do at every Olympics. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. At, I mean, yeah. you have all these like fit young people. Like, yeah, yeah, so they're yeah. passing out like, condoms but they're asking the athletes to take them home <laughs> use them at home because they have to maintain social distance so they're like this is going to be your tokyo wow. 2020 souvenir take it home wow use it at home oh my God. <laughs> okay um <laughs> all right that's all. There's, there's no better end no better <laughs> note to end on than that 
Um, Chelsea, thanks a lot. Um, thanks, Andy. We'll put in a bunch of links to your stuff. Anything to plug in terms of, I don't know, like Twitter handle? Yeah, I mean, book, my, book my Twitter handle is at Sandy Chelsea. Nothing that exciting happens there, but I have some tepid takes on Japan sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks and be safe for yeah. the Olympics. Avoid Olympic athletes Absolutely. as much as possible. Absolutely. Fortunately, uh, I won't be mistaken for one. They won't, they like <laughs> escaped the Olympic Village or something. <laughs> yeah, you look like a truck and field star. Look at, look at okay. European shop. All right. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Bye. Thanks. Everybody.